long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. What's that 129? Well, I have a project to do This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to the sixth hour. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. What happened if his story is different? What do you mean? Like, if his story is, like, different, like, I never did nothing or something. Did you? Huh? Not really. What do you mean, not really? They got to my head. Home to Brandon, Oshkosh Correctional lies west to Lake Winnebago in east-central Wisconsin. Sitting on 273 acres of land, it's the most populous correctional facility in the state and within tangible reach of Brendan's home, which is literally only an hour and minutes away. The Baltic corridors and an 8x10 prison cell offer little comfort to the innocent Dassey who whiles away the hours of incarceration, immersed in the fantasy world of anime and manga novels, watching his beloved TV shows and expanding his musical taste thanks to the influence of a global community of supporters and friends. When Making a Murderer descended upon a captive global audience in December of 2015, Brendan Dassey had all but been forgotten. Branded a hapless killer and rapist since the age of 16, Brendan had been sentenced to life in prison with the earliest possibility of parole in 2048. The courts had judged that he was party to first-degree murder, mutilation of a corpse and second-degree sexual assault. On release of the docuseries, Brendan had spent nine years 
as the flame of notoriety had dimmed, almost alone. Make and a Murderer is an exhaustive chronicle of small-town justice, and it would forever alter the trajectory of its protagonists. Hope, a commodity that even Commissary couldn't offer, was unknown to Brendan and his legal team at this time. Finding its way from the desk of US Magistrate Judge William E. Duffin, who would overturn Brendan's conviction in a 91-page decision in the August of 2016. Next this Friday night, breaking developments in the case made famous in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. ABC's Lindsay Davis on the conviction late today, suddenly overturned. Tonight, a stunning reversal in a case that riveted millions of armchair detectives. A federal judge has overturned the conviction of Brendan Dassey, who was a teenager in 2007, when he was found guilty of helping his uncle Stephen Avery rape and murder photographer Teresa Hallback. Avery remains behind bars. Duffin found Brendan's confession involuntarily given and unconstitutionally coerced by cops who took advantage of Brendan's age and limited intelligence. The federal judge gave the state 90 days to decide whether to retry Brendan or release him. But true to form, Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel filed a dramatic last-minute appeal in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Had Schimmel not appealed, Brendan would have been released by mid-November of 2016. But the fight to free Brendan intensified as Professors Drizzen, Narida and team filed a motion on September the 14th of that year to release Brendan on bail during the state's appeal. This is quite the appeals process. November the 15th, Judge Duffin ordered Brendan be granted supervised release from prison. Duffin wanted Brendan home. This was clear. But unfortunately, the Attorney General filed an emergency motion in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to put the release on hold. With only hours to his release, Brendan sat in a cell to the front of Columbia Correctional. He was ready to leave. He had given away all of his things to other inmates and had changed into brand new clothes. Brendan was hopeful and Brendan was expectant and Brendan just wanted to go home. Outside, he could hear the noise of news vans and journalists setting up to cover his release. With only hours to go, the Seventh Circuit Court ruled that Brendan remained incarcerated pending the state's appeal. It was a torturous timeline at the hands of the state. And for Brendan, his family and team, and for all that believe in him, it was absolutely heartbreaking. We now find ourselves with Brendan on February the 14th, 2017, when Brendan's case was heard in front of a three-judge panel at Chicago's Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Brendan won this round, 2-1, but still Schimmel pursued, requesting an en banc hearing, a rarity in the legal process, and it was granted. 
Brendan would go on to lose to a split court decision of 4-3 later that year, effectively overturning Judge Duffin's decision. Brendan's team filed for a writ of certiorari with the United States Supreme Court. Not only is certiorari a difficult word to say, it's actually a court process to seek judicial review of a decision of a lower court. A case cannot, as a matter of right, be appealed to the US Supreme Court. So a party seeking to appeal to the Supreme Court from a lower court decision must file a writ of certiorari. The court declined to hear Brendan's case. Only taking 100 to 150 of more than 7,000 cases, it's asked to review per year. This was a crushing knockout blow. The amicus briefs had been plentiful and the support from every echelon of society was incredible and it would have been the first juvenile case before the court in more than 40 years, potentially protecting the many Brendans who find themselves caught unwittingly in the legal system, in a legal system that seemingly doesn't care too much about kids. Two years on, the fight to free Brendan intensifies with every wave of advocates that discover Brendan's story and bear witness to the true crime of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Brendan's freedom was not snatched from him on October the 31st, 2005. On October the 31st, Brendan had been on his PlayStation. Brendan had been with his brother Blaine and Brendan was nowhere near Cuss Road. No, Brendan's ordeal was being mapped out for him in Marionette County, northern Wisconsin. Let's take a step back. November the 6th had reached a cold 33 degrees Fahrenheit in Crivets, northern Wisconsin. Having travelled the 81 miles from Two Rivers on the 4th with his uncle Chuck, Brendan was readying himself for a weekend of collecting firewood. Meanwhile, Calumet and Manitowoc County officers had seized the Avery salvage yard and were feverishly searching Avery's garage and trailer. However, the menacing chaos of the salvage yard was not far from Brendan. Around 12pm on the 6th, Brendan left the Avery family cabin in the Marionette County town of Stevenson, accompanied by his older brother Brian to buy Mountain Dew in town. They were pulled over by Detectives O'Neill and Baldwin for Marionette County Sheriff's Office, who seized the car as part of a search warrant. The brothers were then separated. The first interrogation of Brendan Dassey takes place in the back of a police car, commandeered by Detectives O'Neill and Baldwin, and it proved to be the catalyst that initiates the beginning of Brendan's journey into the abyss of Wisconsin's system of justice and its detectives' bare-faced bastardization of the Reed technique on a suggestible 
vulnerable teenager, barely 16 years of age. not too often that somebody's standing by your house, by the field, taking pictures of the van. You got dropped off from school. How many other people are in that school bus? Plus a school bus driver, right? When you're dropped off, it's such an event that someone's standing in your field taking a picture of that van. Did you remember that too, don't you? Bus driver remembers it. Kids on the school bus remember it. The girl taking pictures. You remember that? Well, I wasn't looking. Huh? I wasn't looking in the field. You'd get off that bus and start walking towards your house. Well, sometimes I'm talking to planes. Yeah. While inside the car, and now separated from his brother, O'Neill does not advise Brendan of his Miranda rights, and instead informs Brendan that he's not under arrest. However, Brendan was in custody for Miranda purposes, beginning at the 20-minute mark of the interview, when there's a noticeable shift from a read interview, which is primarily assessment-focused, into use of the nine-step technique, which presumes guilt, takes place. Make no mistake, November the 6th was not a witness interview. It was an interrogation, and Brendan Dassey was not read his Miranda rights. At the mercy of a powerful psychological interrogation technique, Brendan would unknowingly relay foundational details that would cement law enforcement's belief in his involvement in the murder of Teresa Holbach. that Reed elicits deference from Dassey. Investigator Mark Weger of Calumet County Sheriff's Department and Special Agent Tom Fassbender from the Department of Criminal Investigation set upon Brendan as if future recognition and accolades depend upon it. Funny that. This was February of 2006. So how did Brendan get from Crivets in November to an interrogation at Mishicot High School in February. Did the words of a 13-year-old child hold sway? And who sent her? Who sent her? According to Wiegert's testimony at Brendan's trial on the 19th of April 2007, the school counsellor Susan Brand had not shared the information concerning the meeting with Kayla until shortly after Brendan was arrested. Why? Had she thought it just the vivid imagination of a young teenager, only to give it credence once Brendan's arrested? Weger and Wendy Baldwin would interview Kayla for the first time on the 20th of February 2006. Exactly a week later, the abuse of Brendan Dassey would accelerate. Supposed seasoned investigators took a statement from Brandt detailing Kayla specifically asking 
if blood could come up through concrete. Let's just ruminate on that for a minute. If blood can come up through concrete. This was so childlike. Yet Uyghur and Fassbender again give credence to a 13-year-old's imagination to help solidify their case against the oblivious Brendan. Had Caleb been coerced and manipulated too? Had Wiget exploited the suggestibility of a witness? And just in case you're wondering, officers jackhammered the Avery Garage concrete slab. And while it reacted to luminol, which also reacts to animal blood, but we're talking about a family of hunters, except Brendan. Brendan couldn't hunt, didn't hunt, has never hunted. Brendan couldn't hurt animals. Just throwing that in. Metals. Now this is a family who work on a salvage yard, make sense, and various bleaches. There was no DNA or blood found, nor were experts willing to testify that blood was present. Kayla Avery was just a child when she spoke of Brendan's weight loss and supposed uncontrollable crying as if they were precursors for homicidal tendencies. But it's then she invites Wiegert and Fassbender into Brendan's special ed class where this injustice ramps up. Make no mistake, there were many failings in the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. And the halls of a Wisconsin educational facility offered no protection to its charge, a learning disabled student, but instead provided a cocooned gateway for the investigators to circumvent Miranda and molest interrogation techniques at the cost of young Brendan Dassey's life. Wiegert testified at trial that Brendan was not a suspect in the murder of Teresa Halbuck at the time of the February 27th interviews. But contrary to sworn testimony by the investigator, the Michicot interview was an interrogation. Why, even Calumet County District Attorney Ken Kratz is quoted in the Sheboygan Press on March the 3rd as saying, the boy did not voluntarily come forward with the information, but instead had been targeted during the investigation. And targeted Brendan was. Matatwak County Sheriff's Office created a macabre avatar, parading the softly spoken, intellectually challenged Brendan to the media and the people of Wisconsin. There were perp walks aplenty, and Brendan never stood a chance. His future, dependent on the policies of prosecutors themselves influenced by the political context and hierarchy of the environment of small-town Manitowoc, was never going to hold sway in favour of the gentle, introverted Dassey. The presumption of innocence was reserved for the Bernsteins and the Hullbucks of Manitowoc society, not the Averys or Dasseys. Special Prosecutor Ken Kratz made sure of that. Shortly after the disappearance of Teresa Hallbach on Halloween last year, her remains were found on the Avery Salvage Yard property near Manitowoc. A few days later, Stephen Avery was arrested, but investigators stayed on the case, believing there was more to the story. This week, they say, they discovered it. If you knew Ms. Hallbach before she was killed, it's our suggestion, both the sheriff and myself, that you not listen to this press conference. Brendan was subjected 
to a sequential series of fact-feeding interrogations that were acute contributors to his March 1st statement. Interrogated on four separate occasions over a 48-hour period, including three times in a 24-hour time frame with no legal representation, parent or interested party present. All of this perfectly legal, or was it? What else happens to her in her head? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this. For us to believe you. Come on, Brendan. What else? We know, we just need you to tell us. That's all I can remember. All right, I'm just going to come up and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? Because I couldn't think of it. There was a cast of villains in Brendan's piece. And I get down and a little bit dirty in the weeds in later episodes regarding Wiegert, Fassbender, Kaczynski, O'Kelly. Let's throw in Fremgen and Edelstein, Fox, Kratz, and even Schimmel, and their collaborative and extended intention to convict and preserve that conviction in the absence of DNA and in the absence of corroborative evidence, but yet for some of them, in the full knowledge of the confirmation of four federal court judges who upheld Brendan's overturned conviction ruling. The sixth hour is an extension of the conversation surrounding Brendan's continued fight for justice and freedom. I implore you to watch Making a Murderer, and I hope that if you have, you've been given the roadmap to the case files and the interrogation tapes. But if you haven't, join me and will explore, with the help of subject matter experts, the workings of small-town Manitowoc, the interrogations and techniques. We'll look at the -the under-the-hood analysis and discuss the low standard of the ineffective assistance of counsel claim and ride the trajectory of Brendan's appeal journey. But most importantly, and most poignantly, we will invite ourselves into the world of Brendan Dassey, as it is today, fighting for clemency and his life in the state of Wisconsin. The mission is to incite you all to keep saying Brendan Dassey's name and reflect on the learnings of the past four and a half years, for there are many. If you were called for jury service and presented with a case that pivoted on a confession, would you know how to discern whether it was a false confession or not? Millions of potential jurors fact finders from across the globe through Brendan's case I believe would not arrive at the same decision as the jury of 12 women and four men bust in from Dane County in the trial of 2007 did. It would take far less than four and a half hours to rule not guilty. This is the beginning of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. I hope you'll join me.
that he would be set free if he just told police what they wanted to hear. Who could forget that after confessing to murder, Brendan asked, can I go back to school to finish a project that's due in the sixth hour?